mercy, not getting what we deserve. Aren't you glad that God has chosen to be merciful to us? Well, take your Bibles and turn to what I think is the premier passage on communion or the Lord's Supper in the entire scriptures, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're going to be looking at verses 23 through 34, and as you're turning there, let me just ask you to be praying for me this week as I uh, do my best to get my mind around the book of 1 Peter. The plan is to launch into that next Sunday together, uh, our next uh, exposition, uh, consecutive verse by verse through book, a book of the Bible, and so super excited about teaching 1 Peter I counted up the commentaries. I've got 22 commentaries on 1 Peter. I'm in big trouble. Uh, I always do this to myself. It seems to only get worse over the years as I just want to glean from the, the best minds and hearts that are out there. And so I'm excited to dive in and uh, to learn myself what this first letter that uh, Peter wrote to the believers there um, uh, scattered throughout Asia Minor at the time. And so I covet your prayers, uh, that the Lord would just give me a significant um, time in His Word and sweet time of fellowship with Him as I study the Word and prepare uh, to deliver it next Sunday. But we're here this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and let me read verses 23 through 34, a passage that you're familiar with. I read this very often before we take communion. Like I said, I believe it is the, 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 the premier passage on communion in the New Testament Uh, at least uh, obviously the most extensive uh, teaching on it in the New Testament. And so let me begin by reading verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, Paul said, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and we had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment." The remaining matters I will arrange when I come. Father, we thank you for giving us your word, which we are convinced is the only trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live our lives. And so, Lord, we come to this text about communion, one of the two ordinances of the church, something that we do on a regular basis as the Lord has commanded us to do. But We confess, Lord, sometimes we just kind of go through the motions. It's something that we maybe gotten used to, gotten comfortable with, 
um, and or maybe we've never really been instructed on what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so would you use our time this morning to clarify in all of our minds exactly why we take communion, why the Lord instituted this, um, this ordinance for us as a church, and uh, that you would give us a re, uh, just a renewed perspective, uh, a fresh look, and uh, a re, really a renewed commitment to honor Christ uh, during this time together every month. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you came over to our house when uh, our kids were younger and we were having dinner together, during the course of the meal, you would probably have heard Kelly and me say things to our kids like, hey, don't talk with your mouth full, or take smaller bites, don't play with your food, chew with your mouth closed, don't reach, ask for things to be passed, get your elbows off the table, say please and thank you, don't get up without asking to be excused. Kids, any of this sound familiar? You thought it was just your mom and dad that were crazy, right? It's just the way it is, right? Well, like most parents, we tried to teach our kids to have good table manners. Sometimes it even involved discipline to help them learn how to act politely at the table. And we all know how annoying and unappetizing it can be to eat with a rude person with bad manners. And I think that's why it's so important that children learn the polite and proper way to act while eating at the table. Well, obviously, it's infinitely more important that we as God's children are well-mannered while eating at the Lord's table. Nothing grieves our Heavenly Father more than when His children have bad manners at the meal commemorating the death of His precious Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, He takes it so seriously that He will discipline those children who rudely dishonor Christ during this most sacred of occasions. And that's exactly what he had to do with some of the members in the church of Corinth who had bad manners at the Lord's table. When they came together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they were not acting the way they were supposed to. And as a result, God disciplined some of them. In fact, a number of them got sick and even died because of their rude, disobedient behavior. You say, what what could they have done at the Lord's table that was so bad that God killed them for it? Well, according to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, you know that the early church was devoted to taking the Lord's Supper every time they met for worship. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It was customary uh, for a, a local church in the first century to share a meal together after the service and then conclude with communion. The meal was referred to as a love feast because of the love displayed by the believers in sharing the food that they brought with one another. It was, a, uh, it was a, like a giant potluck as we would understand today. And the climax of that love feast was the sharing together of the bread and the cup. And in Corinth, the love feast had degenerated into a gluttonous, drunken party. Notice verses 20 through 22, the verses that lead up to our text. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? 
Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So apparently the wealthy believers there in the church would bring lots of food, but instead of sharing it, they would keep it all to themselves. And oftentimes the poor saints who perhaps served as slaves would arrive late from their duties, and by that time the rich people had already devoured all the food. And so what God had originally instituted and intended to edify and unify the church turned into something that tore down and divided the church. The poor people were going hungry while the rich people were selfishly gorging themselves and some even were getting drunk. Notice verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in a part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So again, they were tearing one another down. They were dividing rather than being united and building one another up. And so in order to correct this problem, Paul taught the Corinthians here in the remaining verses of chapter 11 the proper way to celebrate the Lord's Supper. He taught them how to have good manners at the Lord's table. And so this morning, I want us to see the five ways that we're supposed to act at the Lord's table. Here in verses 23 through 34, in order to avoid the discipline of the Lord. In other words, God takes communion very seriously, and and so should we. And so these are the five things that we need to do whenever we celebrate communion. The first one is commemoration. Commemoration. We need to remember the death of Christ. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in what? remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in what? Remembrance of me. So the first thing we need to do is commemorate, which means to recall or to show respect for someone or something in a ceremony. This is this is what communion is. It's a ceremony commemorating the death of Jesus Christ. And so Paul began here by uh, confirming that what he had already taught them about the Lord's Supper went back to the words of Jesus himself. Jesus had delivered these words to, to Paul personally. Now we can go back to the Gospels, the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to find the account of the Lord's Supper, Matthew 26 Mark 14, Luke 22, all uh, recount uh, the, Lord's, uh, the, the institution of the Lord's Supper. And then he, Paul here replayed the, the, the scene there in the upper room that we read about in those three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper for the first time. And it was, if you remember, the night that Judas betrayed him And Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Passover meal. 
And the Passover was held every year by the Jews as a memorial of God rescuing them from bondage to Egypt. And the name Passover came from the final plague when God killed the firstborn of every living thing. This is back in Genesis chapter 12. And the death angel passed over the houses of the Jews who obeyed God's command, had killed the lamb, and wiped its blood over the doorpost. And the death angel came and saw, oh, that's a house of a Jew. That's a Jewish home because they have blood over the doorstep. They obeyed my command to take that lamb and have it slaughtered in their place. And so God commanded the nation of Israel to celebrate this event every year so that they would never, ever forget God's goodness in delivering them out of slavery to Egypt. But Passover was simply to serve as a picture of how God was going to someday deliver the world from slavery to sin. Because as you know, the very next day, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was sacrificed on the cross and his blood covered our sin so that God's wrath would pass over us. And so really, Passover is simply a type, a picture, a foreshadowing of the death of Christ. And so on that night, Jesus transformed the Jewish celebration of Passover into the Christian celebration of communion. And in the same way that God commanded the Jews to celebrate Passover as a continual reminder of the Exodus, Jesus Christ commanded his followers to celebrate communion as a continual reminder of the cross. And ever since then, after, ever since that night, in that upper room, the Lord's Supper has been considered one of the two ordinances of the church. You have communion and you have baptism. You say, why, why, why do those qualify as ordinances? Well, an ordinance is something that Christ ordained or commanded his followers to practice on a regular basis. And those were the only two things in Scripture that Christ clearly ordained or commanded for us as his people to practice on a regular basis. And that's why that night in the upper room, two times Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So communion is a time to remember, to call back into memory a vivid experience. That's what it means to remember something. When we talk about, hey, remember when that happened. We're going to be doing that here this next week with 9-11. We're going to be remembering calling back into memory that experience and basically where we were when we saw those towers, right, uh, hit with those planes and they, they collapsed and it, it just recapturing the reality of an event. And so when Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, I think he wanted us to relive the agony and the suffering of his death on the cross and reflect on its significance in our life. And so we're to remember, we're to recapture, we're to reflect, we're to relive, if you will, the awesome sacrifice that Christ made for us when he died in our place. And let me be quick to note, this is not a time to re-sacrifice Christ. It's a time to remember Christ, to recall Christ, to reflect on Christ, to perhaps relive that in our minds, in our hearts, what that would have been like standing at the foot of the cross, observing all that we 
all that took place. We just sang a song about that. I, I kneel in the dust at the foot of the cross. The, the, it's, it's, it's the imagery of we should be standing there and envisioning what took place as we read it in the scriptures. But it is not a time to re-sacrifice Christ. And the reason why I say that is because this is the belief and practice of the Catholic Church, which is referred to as transubstantiation. That's your big word for the day. Write it down if you can. Transubstantiation, which simply means a change of substance. Kind of sounds like it, right? Trans, change, substantiation, substance. And so what the Catholic Church teaches is that when the elements, the, 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 the bread and the wine, are consecrated by the priest, a miracle takes place and the bread and the wine are transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ. And even though they still look and taste and smell like bread and wine, they believe that they're the real body and blood of Christ, which infers that Christ is literally present during the Mass and is being re-sacrificed as a means of obtaining grace and forgiveness for sins. That's why communion in the Catholic Church is one of the seven sacraments, one of the seven things you must do in order to be saved. It's a requirement for salvation is to take communion on a regular basis. I hope you all realize that you don't have to take this this morning in order to be saved. And if you don't take communion, it means you're not going to heaven, right? Now, that's not the teaching of Scripture. Back in the 1500s, the reformers like Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others confronted this heretical view of the Lord's Supper and championed the biblical view that the Lord's Supper is simply a memorial. 300 years later, in the 1800s, a man by the name of J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop in the Church of England, was concerned that some of his fellow bishops were embracing the beliefs and practices that threatened to unprotestantize the Church of England and undo what God had done to correct the abuses in the church through the Protestant Reformation 300 years earlier. And so Raoul discerned that the, the Church of England was at risk of returning to this heretical view of the Lord's Supper and reuniting with the Roman Catholic Church and ultimately abandoning the gospel altogether. And so in an effort to motivate the Christians in his day to preserve the purity of the gospel, he reminded them of their rich spiritual heritage in the English reformers who were willing to die during the bloody persecution of Queen Mary's reign. You've heard of Bloody Mary. Maybe you even drank a Bloody Mary, I'm not sure, but you've heard of Bloody Mary. And she was a staunch Roman Catholic, and when she took over the throne in 1553, she immediately and aggressively sought to bring the Church of England back under Roman rule. And she had many, many of the Protestant pastors arrested and imprisoned and demanded that, that they recant and return to the Catholic view of the Mass or be burned alive. He chronicles this in a a powerful book called Light from Old Times. And I'll never forget reading that when I was doing my doctorate and, and, and just with tears, just weeping to hear these stories of some 288 people who were burned at the stake for refusing to accept the doctrine of transubstantiation. 
They realized that, that transubstantiation violated the Scriptures. What the Scriptures clearly teach about the finished work of Christ. And they, they adamantly opposed the, the real presence of Christ in communion. Is Christ present with us on any given Sunday? Absolutely. Is He present with us all the time everywhere we go? Absolutely. But they were saying that Christ was actually there physically in His body through those elements. And so they opposed that, and the view that the priest was offering a continual sacrifice of Christ, which they knew destroyed the very foundation of Christianity, which is the full, perfect, complete, sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And the book of Hebrews and the book of 1 Peter, as we're going to learn, mention this little phrase, once-for-all. Over and over again, once for all, that Jesus died once for all. It is finished. It's over. It's done. It never has to be repeated. And if it has to be repeated, then it wasn't a perfect, complete sacrifice. And so to the English reformers, this was a truth worth dying for. It wasn't just some theological quibble between different, uh, you know, groups in the Christian church. And so that's why, again, the Reformers took what we have adopted as well as a church, uh, what, what we call a memorial view of communion. And so first and foremost, the Lord's table is a time to remember, a time of commemoration. Secondly, it's a time of proclamation. It's a time of proclamation where we profess faith in Christ. So not only do we remember the death of Christ, but we profess faith in Christ. Notice verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And every, in other words, every time you take communion, you proclaim the gospel. The word proclaim there is, is, is the word for making a solemn announcement to publicly profess or to affirm something. And so when we as Christians take communion, we are, we are affirming things. We are literally preaching a silent sermon, if you will. Even though we sit here silently as we hold that piece of bread and we hold that cup and, and we just silently meditate and we pray and, and, and we commune together with Christ and we commune together with one another and, and it's all done kind of in hushed tones, but we're actually preaching a sermon. You say, well, if you can't hear it, what, what, are, we, what are we saying? Well, what is the message that we're preaching? Well, we're saying that we believe that we are sinners who deserve to die and go to hell. We're also saying that we believe that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross in our place. And we're also saying that we believe that the only way we can be forgiven for our sin and be saved from death and hell is by repenting of our sin and placing our faith solely in Christ's death on the cross. That's what we're affirming. That's what we're proclaiming. And so therefore, the Lord's Supper is only for those who affirm these things. In other words, the only people who should take communion are those who have embraced the gospel. That you're truly saved. You're, you're a Christian. You've been born again. 
One of the saddest days in church history was in July of 1750 when Jonathan Edwards was fired from his church after 25 years of faithful service. You might wonder, wait a minute, Jonathan Edwards, that godly man, the the one who's considered to be the, the greatest theologian in American history, fired from his church? I mean, what could he have done that would have got him fired? I mean, he didn't disqualify himself because of some immoral lifestyle or some heretical teaching. He was fired because he refused to compromise what he believed the Bible clearly teaches about the Lord's Supper. See, he was convinced that only those who had repented of their sin and placed their faith in in Christ as their Lord and Savior should partake of the Lord's Supper. And the majority of his church didn't agree with that, and so he was voted out over his commitment to communion. Now, ironically... It was the previous pastor, Solomon Stoddard, who was Edward's own grandfather, who had led the church down this heretical path. He thought communion was just a, a practical way to draw unbelievers into the church. And he believed that allowing an unbeliever to take the Lord's Supper would have such a powerful impact on them that it would cause them to come to Christ. And while he may have had good intentions, he was biblically mistaken. And Edwards was simply trying to correct the church's corrupt view and practice of communion. And he got fired in the process, trying to undo what his own grandfather had done. And so that's why whenever we take communion, you have heard me say this on countless occasions, that If you've not yet confessed your sin to Christ, you've not placed your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, if you're not a Christian, if you've not been born again, then you just let those plates pass you by and don't take anything. Why? Because you are merely a spectator. But the good news is you get a front row seat to the silent sermon that's being preached by all the other Christians sitting around you as they partake of the the bread and the cup, the two elements which represent the body and blood of Christ. And there are a number of members here at our church who their testimony is it was during communion when they heard me say, hey, if you're not a Christian, don't take a piece of bread and don't take a cup that it really kind of shocked them and they realized, you know what, I'm not a Christian. And they prayed to receive Christ during the communion sermon. That's when they got saved. And so the Lord's table is a time to to publicly profess our faith in Christ's death alone for our salvation. So listen, we we trust you parents to shepherd your kids through this. Um, And our kids are all at different levels of spiritual growth and development. Some Uh, are yet to have made a profession of faith in Christ. Others have. Sometimes it's hard to discern when they're younger if that was real and legitimate and you just, you encourage and you look for fruit and, right, we, this was our experience as parents, we waited for our kids to ask us to take communion. 
In other words, we never encouraged them to take communion. Even after they made professions of faith in Christ, we waited for them to figure it out or for the Spirit of God to convict them. And, and uh, there came a day when they said, hey, can I take communion? And we said, well, why do you want to take communion? And when they were able to articulate the gospel that they understood and they understood why we take communion, we were like, yeah, you can take communion. But again, what a great opportunity, at least once a month, you as parents get to have a gospel conversation with your kids, particularly with those that may have yet to made a profession of faith in Christ. It, it forces the issue in a good way. Um, hopefully some very positive conversations and interactions uh, can take place either on your way to church or after church, hopefully not in the middle of church, right? Whispering in each other's ear, trying to sort this thing out. Is the plate's coming down? We've got to make this decision really quick. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming, right? No, you should have that conversation before you come to church or maybe, hey, let's hold off and let's talk about it this afternoon or this week, right? But again, great opportunities to shepherd your children. And so we have commemoration. We have proclamation. Thirdly, it's anticipation. We anticipate the return of Christ. Notice the end of verse 26. He says, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So communion is not only a time to look back at Christ's death, but a time to look forward to Christ's return. And we know that after Jesus died, he rose again and ascended back to heaven. And before he left, he promised to come back someday and to take his followers to be with him in heaven. And in Matthew's account of the Lord's Supper, this is what Jesus said in Matthew 26, verse 29, I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. He said, the next time we're going to have communion together, it's going to be in heaven. And heaven, we know, is pictured in God's word as eating this great feast with God. The great theologian, Charles Hodge, said it this way, quote, as the Passover was a perpetual commemoration of the deliverance out of Egypt and a prediction of the coming and death of the Lamb of God, so the Lord's Supper is at once a commemoration of the death of Christ and a pledge of his coming the second time. Donald Whitney adds to that statement. He said the Lord's Supper is a link between his two comings, the monument of one and the pledge of another. And so the Lord's table is a time to anticipate the Lord's return, that he promised to come back and get us and to celebrate this with us again in heaven. Fourthly, and this is maybe the one that we're most familiar with, the purpose of communion, and that is examination. Examination. We need to check for sin against Christ. We need to check for sin against Christ. Notice verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. The heart of this verse is that phrase, unworthy manner. 
What, what does that mean to, to take communion in an unworthy manner? It's taking part in the Lord's Supper in a way that dishonors the worth of what it represents, the incalculable cost paid at the cross. What are some ways that the Lord's Supper could be taken in an unworthy manner? Let me suggest for you a few ways. Number one, taking communion ritualistically. In other words, believing that by taking it, you are earning your way to heaven. That somehow this is a means of grace to save us or to keep us saved. That's taking communion in an unworthy manner. Treating it as a sacrament, if you will. At least the way the Catholic Church defines a sacrament, something necessary for your salvation. I think you can also take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner by taking it irreverently. Taking it in a, in a nonchalant, apathetic, flippant way. Just kind of going through the motions Right, oh, here we go again. I see the table. We're going to do it. I know how to do it. I know the, how, the, you know, how it works and the, you know, the, the, the guy plays the guitar or the piano and they, the elders come and they pass stuff around and the elders pray and without thinking about what you're doing, without any emotion involved. But perhaps the, the main way that we can take communion in an unworthy manner is to take it unrepentantly. Unrepentantly. In other words, that we are holding on to some sin in our life that we're unwilling to confess or to forsake. Or maybe we're being unwilling to reconcile with another member of the body of Christ. We're going to talk about that in the last point. Paul's saying here, if you... If, if you do any of these things, you're guilty of sinning against the worth of Christ's death. Listen to the words of the, the author of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, talking about the sacredness of the, of the cross. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Some vivid language there, talking about trampling under our feet God's Son, disregarding his sacrifice insulting God's spirit. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's exactly what happened to the Corinthians. They had fallen into the hands of the living God. They had treated Christ's death in an unworthy manner and God judged them for it. It says some got sick and some even died. Why? Because they failed to, to honestly examine themselves. Notice how Paul goes on to give the remedy or the way not to eat the bread 
and drink the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner? Instead, verse 28, a man must examine himself and in so doing is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. That word examine there is the word dokimazo in the Greek, which means uh, it was a word that was used about for, for testing metal to see whether or not it was genuine. And so what he's saying here is that you need to thoroughly examine yourself to ensure that everything in your life is right with God. We've all gone to a, a doctor to get a physical exam, right? A, a doctor kind of checks us out from head to toe, runs all these tests on us. To make sure we're, we're healthy, physically healthy. Well, in a s- similar way, we need to give ourselves a, a complete spiritual checkup and kind of examine ourselves from head to toe and, and, and check our actions and, and our attitudes and our words and our thoughts and our motives in the same way a doctor checks our pulse and, and, and our blood pressure and all those other things. We need to check our actions and our, and our attitudes, our words, our thoughts, our motives and judge ourselves. Notice He says in verse 29, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. So I think examining yourself and judging yourself are are synonymous. It's, It's all the same thing. You're evaluating your life. You're acknowledging any guilt that you may have for some sin and you confess it and you repent of it. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to what? to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we're not willing to examine ourselves or to judge ourselves before taking the Lord's Supper, then we're inviting God to judge us. In other words, if you don't deal with your sin, then God will deal with it for you. And he does it by disciplining you. Just like a father disciplines his children until they confess and forsake some sinful habit. And so that's why we give, give all of us time, right, as we pass the elements and the music is playing and, and it's just a time to, to focus on Christ, to thank Him, to praise Him for what He did for us. Um, but it's also a time to examine our lives and to consider where we're at in our relationship with Christ and if there's some sin in our life that we're aware of that we've not confessed that we're not seeking to mortify that this would be uh, the opportunity to do that it's a it's a it's again it's a it's a monthly accountability um, I have a weekly accountability every time I get up behind this pulpit I, I want to make sure that I'm right with the Lord and so There's a whole lot of confession that takes place on Saturday night and Sunday morning. And even as I'm sitting there or singing the songs, you know, there's, there's, I'm, I'm, God's reminding me of perhaps sin that I've committed that I want to confess. And I'm praying, Lord, forgive me for that. Have mercy on me, a sinner, and cleanse me. I want to be a, a vessel that you can use for your glory. So we need to be constantly examining our lives and judging ourselves and, 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 uh, looking doing a self-examination. In fact, the Puritans took this command so seriously to, to examine themselves. Whenever they had a, a, a communion service scheduled for a Sunday morning, the night before, on Saturday, they would schedule an examination service. They actually had a 
full-blown service and would I invite everybody to come to church to examine themselves, to confess their sin in preparation for taking communion the next morning. Speaking of taking communion seriously, some of you may remember years ago I shared the story about John Calvin and the Libertines, and John Calvin was uh, a pastor of a church in Geneva, the church in Geneva, if you will, back in the 15, 1600s, and uh, there was a group of people uh, back then called the Libertines in Geneva, and uh, it was a common practice to keep a mistress, and uh, this is how John Piper describes what uh, was going on there. They the, these, these libertines boasted in their license in Christ, their freedom in Christ. That's why they're called libertines. They, they, they said, hey, we have freedom in Christ. And so they flaunted their liberty and they practiced adultery and indulged in sexual promiscuity in the name of Christian freedom. And at the same time, they claimed the right to sit at the Lord's table. So they were living in open sin and expecting to be served communion at the same time. Well, this was a crisis for Calvin because he couldn't think of giving communion to someone who was living in open sin. And they knew it and they were flaunting it because he said, hey, communion is for the glory of Christ and you're, you're, you're taking communion in an unworthy manner if you're not examining yourself, if you're not judging yourself. And so in one of uh, Calvin's biographies, this is how the day is described when the libertines assaulted the communion table with drawn swords. The sermon had been preached, the prayers had been offered, and Calvin descended from the pulpit to take his place beside the elements at the communion table. The bread and wine were duly consecrated by him, and he was now ready to distribute them to the communicants. Then on a sudden rush, then on a sudden a rush was begun by the troublers in Israel, as he called them, in the direction of the communion table. And so here comes these libertines who Calvin had said, there's no way you're taking communion at our church. I am not going to give you a piece of bread, and I'm not going to give you a, a, a glass of wine. And so they rushed the communion table with drawn swords and Calvin flung his arms around the sacramental vessels as if to protect them from sacrilege while his voice rang through the building, quote, these hands you may crush, these arms you may lop off, my life you may take, my blood is yours, you may shed it, but you shall never force me to give holy things to the profane and dishonor the table of my God. Can you imagine, right? Just, he's, he's protecting the elements from these guys. In other words, you're taking communion over my dead body. Calvin's first biographer, Beza, who was also his uh, successor, said this, after this, the sacred ordinance was celebrated with a profound silence and under solemn awe in all present. <laughs> I would say so. 
And so all that being said, the Lord's table is a time to examine our life, to deal with any unconfessed sin, and make things right with God. And, and again, this is where we have to, you know, there's a fine line here. You say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm here and I'm confessing my sin and I know that, 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 that it's wrong and I want to change, but man, it seems like I still kind of, you know, have this besetting sin and I, get, I fall back into it time and time again. Does that mean you should stop taking communion? I don't, I don't think that's what is the intent here of this passage. Simply saying you need to acknowledge that sin in your life. And if you're confessing it to the Lord, that it's wrong, that it dishonors him, it displeases him, and you're, based on the spirit of God in you, seeking to mortify that sin, then I think that's the heart that honors the Lord. That you can take communion, even though there's a sin struggle in your life, as long as you're acknowledging it and you're working on it by the, with the help that the spirit provides you. Because if that were the case, none of us would be taking communion very often, <laughs> right? I mean, there'd be lots of reasons why I could say, you know what, there's sin in my life, there's sin patterns in my life, there's no, I can't take communion this morning. But the key is acknowledging it, working on it, and seeing by the grace of God progress in it. Lastly, number five is Unification. Unification. That we are to unite with the body of Christ. Notice the last two verses, verses 33 and 34. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. Did you notice the, 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 um, the body life here? Two times. Paul mentions this coming together. He even mentions one another here in verse 33. These are, these are uh, the, the body of Christ language, right? The language of the church. That the Lord's Supper is a coming together of the members of the body of Christ. We, we refer to it as communion, which comes from the Greek word koinonia, which is the word for what? Fellowship. A, a sharing in common together. Turn back just a page probably in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, Paul asked the question, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? He's referring to communion. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body for all partake of the one bread. So again, Paul's emphasizing the, the, the unifying work of communion. It's, 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 it's all part of the body of Christ. That's how, why, one of the reasons why we're one. That makes one of the things that makes us one. We have Christ in common. And so communion was intended to be a beautiful demonstration of the unity and the harmony of all those who are part of the body of Christ. That's why I will say from time to time, hey, if you're visiting today, we at Lakeside Bible Church practice open communion, which simply means you don't have to be a member of our church in order to take communion at our church. If you're a member of the body of Christ, then we invite you to join with us, right? Because this is for all of us who are truly saved. 
and we can enjoy, again, it's a picture of the unity that we share, the harmony that we share in Christ, even if we come from a different denomination or a different, uh, you know, theological conviction uh, on some things, if we come together around the Lord's Supper, right, and understand it as a memorial event, then we share this moment in common. Well, as I already pointed out, there wasn't much unity or harmony in the church in Corinth. There was dissension. There was division among the church members. They weren't lovingly and patiently participating together, but they were acting rudely in their own self-interest. And that's why Paul told them to wait for one another so they all could participate together in a unified manner. And so I guess the way to think about it is that the, the Lord's Supper is a family meal. It's like we all come to dinner, right? The, the communion bell rings, ding, 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 ding. It's, all time, it's time for all of us to come to the, to the supper table. And when we come to the table together, we need to make sure we're right with everyone else in the family. And if we aren't, then before eating, we need to reconcile with any brother or sister that we have an issue with. Jesus gave us very clear, very simple instructions in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering to the altar, at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. And then later on in Matthew, Matthew 18, Jesus shared the other side of the coin. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. So in other words, if you've sinned against someone or they've sinned against you, you've offended someone or you've been offended by someone, need to Make that right. And again, this is such a good accountability, right, for the unity of our church. Because let's face it, when you get a bunch of people, a bunch of sinners, right, under one roof in one family, I mean, you, we each have a microcosm of that in our own families, right? You have three, four, five, six people in, under, under the same roof. I mean, there's a lot of sin going on. There's, you're sinning against each other a lot, right? And, and, and even in a church this size, it's, it's easy to get sideways with one another and get cross-threaded with somebody and, and, and you just kind of live with this tension and you sadly avoid the, those people or, you know, you see them come and you walk the other way and, 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 and Jesus is like, what? God's like, what? Communion is a time to make those things right. And so as you examine your life, before taking communion, not only should you consider your relationship with Christ and make sure you're right with Christ, I think you also should examine your life to make sure you're right with one another. Your spouse, your, your kids, your parents, your brother, your sister, your fellow believer in the church. And if you know there's something not right there, then I think if you acknowledge that before the Lord and you say, Lord, would you grant me the grace to go to them today or this week and make that right, I think you can take communion. But if you're sitting there saying, yeah, I know, I know we're sideways one another, I know we're not right, 
And you know what? I'm not ready to forgive. Well, at that point, you probably, let, you need, not probably, you need to let those elements pass you by until you're ready to make that right with the Lord and make that right with that other person. Because you're mocking the, the oneness, the unity of what the Lord intended. The purpose of communion was to bring us together as his family. God is the omniscient father who sits at the head of the Lord's table. And he has perfect knowledge of everything going on in the family at any, any given time. And you can't come to the table and act like everything's okay if you have something between you and the other, another brother or sister sitting at the table. It's like when our kids were little and I was sitting at the head of the table and we were there and, 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 and I could tell my kids were kicking each other under the table. But they were looking at me like, but I could see their bodies moving, I could see their legs going and they were kicking each other under the table, but they were making it, wanted me to think that everything was okay between their brother and sister when it wasn't. And I knew that and I was like, you guys think I'm stupid? Gus, like, you think I'm stupid? I know you are not right with that person. And you're not getting along with this person, or you have a hard heart towards that person. He knows that. And the sad part is if you're out of fellowship with another believer, you're out of fellowship with God. And so you need to get right with that person before you can be right with God. And again, having regular communion service, uh, services promotes and preserves the unity of the church. Amen? Again, it forces the issue. It forces us as, as members of the church to deal with any issues that maybe have come between us and, and to be diligent to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace as it talks about in Ephesians 4 verse 3. So the Lord's table is a time to unite with other members of the body of Christ and enjoy the sweet unity and fellowship that's exclusive to the family of God. So these are the five ways we're supposed to act whenever we come around the Lord's table. Maybe another way to look at these is there are the five reasons why we take communion together on a regular basis. To remember the death of Christ, to profess faith in Christ, to anticipate the return of Christ, to check for sin against Christ, and to unite with the body of Christ. These are the Lord's table manners. And so let me pray, and we get to put into practice what we've just studied. Father, thank you for this clear passage that really tackles all the related subjects to this sacred ceremony that you ordained for us to practice and celebrate on a regular basis. Lord, I pray for those this morning who are not saved. They've yet to confess their sin before you. They've yet to place their faith in Christ alone for their salvation, that, Lord, you would soften their hearts even now as they, as they hear this silent sermon proclaimed and preached. They've heard a, 
a, a, a loud sermon proclaimed, and now they're going to hear a silent sermon. I pray you use the combination of those two sermons today to draw them to Christ, to cause them to be born again. Lord, I pray for the rest of us that we would be careful to examine ourselves and to be open and honest with you about any sin issues in our lives that we're not addressing and that we would make those things right with you. And Lord, if in some way we've gotten sideways with someone here in the church, maybe in our own family, that you would grant us the grace to commit even now to make that right. That as far as it's up to us, we're going to do everything we can to be at peace with that person. And so would you accomplish your purposes this morning in this flock, in this church, for why you ordained us to do this together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.